Edward J. Smith was born in 1850 in Staffordshire, England. Edward Smith's dad was a potter, and then uh, his dad owned a grocery store. Uh, Smith dropped out of school at just the age of 12, and he did this for a life at sea. And in many respects, uh, Edward Smith was a prodigy sailor. By the time he was 24, Edward Smith was a master shipman. And after, at first he commanded cargo vessels, made several trips across the Atlantic Ocean. And by the time Edward Smith was 30, he led passenger vessels. Uh, the, uh, he did this for 20 years with just one interruption of England's war in South Africa. And the fleet that Edward Smith worked for, uh, it kept getting bigger and bigger, and it kept getting bigger and bigger ships. And they put Edward Smith in charge. And so the fleet still determined to grow and venture into ocean liners to compete with ships like the Lusitania. You know your history, you know that ship. Uh, but in 1912, Edward Smith became the captain of a ship you've definitely heard of, and that ship is the Titanic. So uh, the Titanic at the time was the biggest and most luxurious ship uh, in all of the world. It carried 2,200 passengers on her maiden voyage from Europe to America. And four days into the Titanic's maiden voyage, all was well. On April 14, 1912, the Titanic received a warning from another ship about ice and water. Then in the afternoon of that same day, the Titanic received another warning about ice from a different ship. That same day still, in the evening, yet another warning came from another ship. And later that night, two more warnings came. But Edward Smith and all the crew, they attended to more important matters, like answering telegrams of famous passengers or attending dinner parties with railroad executives. So by the time a crew member spotted an iceberg at 11.40 p.m. on April 14th, it was too late. The ship could not avoid a collision, and the rest, they say, is history. There are different stories about what happened to Smith, but most agree that he stuck to the tradition and the captain went down with the ship. Now, plenty of lessons you can draw from Edward Smith and the Titanic as a whole, and one of them is from the movie is that you can share a plank in the water and you both can live, um, but that's for another time. Uh, one lesson remains from uh, Edward Smith and Titanic that it relates especially to Leviticus 8 through 10. Lesson is this. If the captain fails, then he puts the entire ship in danger. If the captain fails, then he puts the entire ship in danger. So to bring you up to speed, remember that the book of Leviticus, it's not just an isolated set of rules. It comes within a story. God gives Leviticus to resolve a problem. You see, God has taken up residence in the camp of his people. He dwells in the tabernacle, this big fancy tent. But no one can meet God in the tabernacle. So at the end of Exodus, not even Moses himself can meet God in the tabernacle. So enter Leviticus. And God speaks from the tent of meeting, and he tells his people that they can approach his presence through sacrifice. So here we have spotless animals going in the place of sinful people, and the blood of those animals atones for the sins of those people. Now included in God's instructions about sacrifice are what the priests would do with these sacrifices. 
God has given them a system of sacrifices to atone for their sins, but it's the priests who really carry out this system. They're like the captains. And like captains, they help the Israelites stay afloat. So in Leviticus chapters 8 through 10, which we'll begin this morning, we get a closer look at who the priests are, why they're needed, what God intends to do through them. And when we read the Bible, we often think about how our experience is thousands of years and thousands of miles away. And, and we're right. Our experiences might not be exactly like the Israelites in the wilderness, but what's true of them is still true of us. It's the main point, the main lesson from these chapters this morning. It's that for us to know the blessing of God's presence, we need someone who represents us, someone who cleanses us, and someone who sanctifies us. For us to know the blessing of God's presence, you need someone who represents you, someone who cleanses you, someone who sanctifies you. And you might have guessed it, guessed it, but that person ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll uncover this lesson by looking at one chapter at a time, Leviticus 8, 9, and 10. And with each of those chapters, we're going to ask one question. So first question is, who are the priests? Second question, what's their goal? Third question, what could go wrong? Question number one, who are the priests? Here we're looking at chapter 8. So up to this point, chapters 1 to 7 are like instructions to a board game. I don't know what your family's like when you're getting ready to play a game, but I wager that every family has one person who just insists on reading all of the instructions from cover to cover with no break. And so this is like chapters 1 to 7. And now chapter 8 feels like the start of the game, finally. So with the system of sacrifices set now, God will get the system started by setting up priests. And if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, and this begins a pattern. God's instructions come through Moses. So Moses is the prophet through whom God speaks to establish the priests. So even right away, we're hinted at two different offices that Jesus will ultimately fulfill. That Jesus is the ultimate prophet and the ultimate priest. Anyway, jump down to verse 4. Establishing the priests was so important that God tells everybody to be there. This was likely a group of elders that represented all of the tribes of Israel. But still, a detail like verse 4 should alert us. Something important is about to happen. So who are these priests? These are the ones getting established. Verse 5 begins a seven-day process that consecrates the priests. Now, I bet that you haven't used the word consecrate this week. Uh, so this means that priests get set apart for service to God. So what happens to these priests, and what happens for these priests during this week-long ceremony tells us a little bit about who they are and what they do. So what happens to them? Let's notice seven different actions that happen to the priest or for the priest in Leviticus chapter 8. Action number one. Before anything else, the priests are washed. They're washed. This happens in verse 6. Washing is symbolic throughout the Bible. It demonstrates that we need the Lord to cleanse our hearts as much as we need to wash off our bodies. The first example you probably think of about with washing is baptism. That's a good example to think of. 
In his first letter, Peter explains how baptism is more than just removal of dirt from our bodies. Rather, baptism shows our appeal to God to cleanse us through the work of the risen Christ. That's from 1 Peter 3. And speaking of Peter, Jesus told Peter how those who come to him only need their feet to be washed after they first believe. So this reminds us, like every day, you and I, we pick up grease and we pick up dirt and we pick up sweat, and we need, just as much as we need to wash off those, we need to confess our sin that after we commit every day. So the priests first, they are washed. Actions that happen to them. Second, the priests are clothed. They're clothed. This happens from verses 7 to 9. Here the priests get their uniforms. The same principle worked back then as works now. The higher the position, the more important the role, the fancier the uniform you get. So God draws attention to the importance of the priest's role through their very ornate garments. But their garments do something else also. The priest's uniform also reflects what the priests do. They reflect their function. So just a couple of examples, and keep in mind, if you want to look at more details about the priest's clothes, you can look at Exodus chapters 28 and 29 to fill in more details. So a couple of examples about the priest's clothes, and they show what they do. First example is the priest's breastplate. So the priest's breastplate had 12 stones, and on each of those stones was inscribed a tribe of Israel. So this, this would tell the priest that when he approaches God's presence, he symbolically carries with him all of God's people. So the breastplate would remind the priest that he represents all of the people to God. So another example of what the priest wore shows what he does. Uh, there's also in verse 9, you see there, there's a turban upon which a crown is placed. And again, from Exodus 28 and 29, the golden plate on the the crown read holy to the Lord. So here, this crown tells us not only that the priests function as priests, but in a way, the priest also functions like a king. So keep in mind that the tabernacle is God's presence reestablished on earth. The tabernacle is like a mini renewed garden of Eden. A lot of even the images inside the tabernacle should remind Israel of the garden of Eden. And like the Garden of Eden, God charged Adam to keep and guard it as one who exercises dominion over it, like a king. And so here, God charges the priests to do the same thing, to keep and guard the tabernacle, the place where God is present. So who are the priests? The priests are washed, they are clothed, and number three, they are anointed. This happens from verses 10 to 13. The word anoint means to smear or to pour. And Aaron and his sons were to be like the rest of the items in the tabernacle. They were to be set apart for service to the Lord. There's another layer to anointing also, because the Bible uses oil often as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. So we can combine the clothes that the priest wears with the oil that he's anointed with. The clothes that he wore would have looked a lot like the materials from the tabernacle. The oil should have reminded him of God's presence that fills the tabernacle. So together, the priest's clothes and the priest's oil shows that he himself is to be like a mini tabernacle, a person in whom God is present. Who are the priests? Number four, they are atoned for. 
they are atoned for. Chapter 8 describes this for a while. It goes on to describe this series of sacrifices made for the priests. So just think about this. The guys who were to make sacrifices for Israel had to have sacrifices made for them. Moses had to sprinkle blood on all of the stuff in the tabernacle that the priests touched. The priests' very presence in their tabernacle got it dirty. So this reminds us that even the holiest men in all of Israel had sin. This reminds us that the blood of the sacrifices means that the wages for any sin, even the sin of holy men, the wages for it, is death. The priest's need for atonement silences our comparisons to other people. Silences the ways we look at other people to justify our own sin, because even the so-called best people in Israel needed forgiveness and atonement. The priest's need for atonement should remind us also that we need better priests than human ones. We need better priests than mere human ones. This is a lesson from the book of Hebrews. We need the Son of God who took on flesh. We need Him to represent us before God. It's what we read earlier from Hebrews 7, verse 27, which says, Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. Who are the priests? washed, they're cleansed, they're anointed, they're atoned for. Number five, they're consecrated. I know we've said this already, but this happens especially from verses 22 to verse 30 in Leviticus 8. The whole ceremony so far has served to set apart the priests for the Lord, but now their dedication carries a new weight because God has just provided atonement, payment for their sin. So having been atoned for, having been forgiven, their complete dedication now carries new weight. Friends, this pattern continues even now. Jesus has paid for our sins fully and finally. And now in response, we live in grateful devotion to him as living sacrifices. We're reminded of this all over the New Testament. In one place is Romans chapter six which instructs us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. It instructs us to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. The priests are consecrated. One example of this, take a look at chapter 8, verse 24. Chapter 8, verse 24. Which says, Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right Well, in the Bible, the right side is always this place of prominence. It's always a place of importance. And, but this verse, again, shows the priest's complete consecration or complete devotion to the Lord. One commentator sums it up this way. The priests are to have ears that listen to God's voice, hands that do God's deeds, and feet that walk in God's ways, completely devoted to God. Number six, the priests are welcomed. The priests are welcomed. This happens in verses 31 to 32. The priests get to enjoy a peace offering for themselves. So having been atoned for, having been dedicated or consecrated, they sit to enjoy fellowship with God. Like we've said last week, a meal indicates fellowship. It indicates closeness and peace. The priests are welcomed. 
And then chapter 8 closes with the last action that happens to the priest. Number 7, they are warned. They are warned. This happens especially in verse 35 of chapter 8. So through Moses, God tells the priest that there is life only within the boundaries of God's good and holy commands. So they are warned. This is who the priests are. The film Dodgeball, a true underdog story, contains the evil villain of White Goodman. White is the owner and operator of Globo Gym America. Globo Gym has the most modern exercise equipment, it has the strongest men, and it has the prettiest women. The film opens with a commercial for Globo Gym, a very satirical commercial, and the commercial closes with the frank and honest tagline, here at Globo Gym, we're better than you, and we know it. <laughs> Who are the priests? They are not Globo Gym. They're not Globo Gym. God does not establish this elite, unattainable class who looks down at all the plebes of society. Yes, the Israelites need priests to lead them. They need priests to represent them before God. But the priests are models for what each Israelite is meant to be. God wants to establish a kingdom of people who have their sins atoned for, a kingdom of people who live devoted to him, a kingdom of people who enjoy peace with him. God wants to establish a kingdom of people who bring others into his presence, a kingdom of people who represent what God's like to the rest of the world. God wants to establish a kingdom of priests. My friends, God has done this. Christian, I don't know if you know this, maybe you do. You're a priest. You're a priest. The Bible calls you a royal priest. Jesus is our great high priest. He has atoned for our sins by sacrificing himself. And now God calls us to devote ourselves in grateful service to him as a living sacrifice. So Christian, when God sees you, he sees you wearing Jesus's priestly garments, the robes of Jesus's perfect life, the clothes of Jesus's complete obedience to God's word. Through Christ, you can enjoy the peace and presence of God like a priest does. Through the anointing of God's spirit in us, we can represent what God's like to a dark world, like a priest is meant to do. Christian, you are a priest. Chapter 9 mainly continues the themes already begun in chapter 8, but chapter 9 builds toward a culmination. By the end of the chapter, we're going to see the goal that the priests have, but the journey to this goal narrows in on one individual. It narrows in on Aaron. So again, the chapter begins with God's word through Moses. But verse 2 concentrates on Aaron. Aaron takes center stage. Our commentator Gordon Wenham observes the appropriate irony of the animal that God instructs Aaron to sacrifice for his sin. You see that in verse 2? So what's the first animal that Aaron must sacrifice for his sin? It's a calf. Verse 1, it's, it's him alone before the whole group of people. First animal he's got to sacrifice is a calf. I mentioned earlier that Exodus 28 and 29 contain many of the same instructions for the priests. 
But there's about a 20 chapter gap between Exodus 28 and 29 and this point in Leviticus. So what happens? Was there some kind of interruption? Was there some kind of delay between these places? Well, yeah, there was. It was the golden calf incident. The Israelites made the golden calf and they called it God, Yahweh. And you remember who was a big time facilitator of the golden calf incident? It was Aaron, this same guy right here in chapter nine. This same guy here, think about this. This same guy now has the highest religious office in all of Israel. That Aaron is here. This tells us that yes, Leviticus should constantly remind us of God's purity. Leviticus should remind us constantly that God is committed to what is good and to what is right, that God is totally unblemished by sin. Leviticus, yes, should remind us of that. Leviticus should also constantly remind us of God's love, forgiveness, and grace. The whole book is about providing atonement for sin. It should remind us that God forgives, that God restores, that God even uses those who betrayed him goodness. And the good news is that God still does this. I think of Peter. Peter is like the New Testament Aaron. God restored Aaron through a calf. Jesus restored Peter, who denied him three times, by asking him three times if he loves him. And Jesus goes on to use Peter mightily to spread the gospel to Jerusalem and beyond. So if, if you're here today, if, if you've never thought that you can fit the mold of what you think a Christian is supposed to look like, well, my friend, you are the exact kind of person God loves to redeem and God loves to use. Aaron's restoration here in Leviticus 9, it makes me think of what one Christian author wrote. He says this, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. And if you trust in Christ, your story is the same as Aaron's, and your story is the same as the Christians in Thessalonica, Paul described it, how they turned from dead idols to serve the living God. My friend, if you, are, if you do not serve and love and follow Jesus, then you are serving, loving, and following dead idols. Today is the day to turn from them to the living God. So God used the former idolater Aaron to fulfill his plan for the tabernacle, to fulfill his plan for the sacrifices, to fulfill his plan for the priesthood, all of these together. God had one goal. The goal was to bring his people into the blessing of his presence. Look at what happens at the end of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 22 to 24. It says, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. 
And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of God appeared to all of them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. God's goal was to bring his people into the blessing of his presence. Brothers and sisters, God still has this goal to bring us into the blessing of his presence. He does that through the better great high priest, his son, Jesus. Hebrews 4, 16, you probably know this verse, says that through Jesus, we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and help in our time of need. Revelation 21, at the very end of the Bible, offers us a vision for where believers in Jesus are headed. The place where God himself dwells with man. The place where there is no need of light or lamp. For the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. God still has a plan and still has the goal to bring his people into the blessing of his presence. The end of Leviticus 9 should give us hope for the end that God is leading us toward. But there's Leviticus 10. You know, the snowfall today and earlier this week, it, it got me thinking of uh, growing up and going sledding. Um, and so I do this throughout my childhood and did it throughout high school. So when a bunch of 15-year-old boys get together to go sledding, there, there's endless possibilities. Lots of fun, and we ask, what could possibly go wrong? Well, what could go wrong a lot, let me tell you, is if these group of 15-year-old boys play human bowling on the sledding hill. And so a group of them line up on the middle of the hill, facing away from the people coming down the hill, and they're like bowling pins waiting to get knocked over. What could go wrong? What could go wrong is one guy breaks his nose and gets blood all over the hill. Uh, that spoils the fun. Thankfully, it wasn't me. Um, at the end of chapter 9, Israel enjoys the blessing of God's presence. So at this point, we ask, what could go wrong? Well, God's presence is a blessing, but God's presence is dangerous to those who approach him wrongly. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis, how famously he captures this tension when he wrote about Aslan the lion. You probably heard about this uh, interchange from the Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, uh, where Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God's presence is a blessing, but God's presence is dangerous to those who approach him wrongly. So what could go wrong when God's presence shows up in Israel's camp? Well, there's an incident. And before we answer what could go wrong when we approach God's presence, we need to see what happened with this incident. And then we should try to wrestle through how to respond to it. So what happened? Look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died one of the tougher chapters in Scripture. We read this and we don't get all the details of exactly what happened. 
Don't get details of exactly what Nadab and Abihu did. We, we're not told their motives. We're not told where they got this incense. We're not told where they made this fire. However, when we we're trying to piece together what happened, there are a couple of other places in Leviticus that could help us. So one place later on in chapter 10, God tells Aaron that and his sons that they can't drink before they go into the tabernacle. And so being so close to the Nadab and Abihu incident, it's very possible that Nadab and Abihu could have been drunk when they did this. So God tells Aaron and his sons, don't get drunk on the job. Or don't drink on the job. And then another place, chapter 16. Maybe it helps us piece together what happened here. Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. In this chapter, God gives instructions about how to approach the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. This is the innermost part of the tabernacle, the most special place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is. Only the high priest could go in there. And the high priest could only go in there once a year. At the beginning of chapter 16, the beginning of these instructions, God tells them that he gives them right after the death of Nadab and Abihu. He gives them right after Nadab and Abihu. It says they drew near the Lord and they died. So these two context clues together, I think, can lead us to reasonably conclude what happened. Adab and Abihu got drunk, and then they tried to go into the Holy of Holies. This is my wager. And you know what's the most important way to explain what happened at the beginning of Leviticus 10? The most important detail is actually what's not there. It's what's absence. Compare the start of chapter 10 to the way chapter 8 starts and to the way chapter 9 starts and you will see a very stark difference you see chapter 8 and chapter 9 both begin with God's word that comes through Moses how does chapter 10 start? just with Nadab and Abihu God's word is absent at the start of chapter 10 Nadab and Abihu didn't do this in obedience to God's commandment Nadab and Abihu did this in obedience to their own commandment. So this is what happened. Now before we answer how, how, what could go wrong when God's presence is on us, the toughness of this situation, we should wrestle through it for a moment. How should we react to this? Because let's be honest, part of you, part of me, might, a little part of, of you might think that this is just another unfortunate overreaction. Part of you might think that the punishment doesn't fit the crime here in Leviticus 10. So how should we react to it? By no means is this an exhaustive list, but we can react, I think, in at least six ways, very quickly, six ways. First, we should remember the context. Remember the context. We pointed out earlier, Nadab and Abihu were warned. They were warned. We noticed that in chapter eight, verse 35. They understood that obedience to God's word is vital. They understood that God's not a liar, that God is true to his word. If God's not to his, true to his word, then we can't trust him. So this context reminds us that they were warned. And it should remind us also that we are warned as well. I think of Jesus' words and how they ring clearly from this incident when Jesus says, repent or you will likewise perish. How should we react to this? Number two. We should question whether we really know how holy God is. We 
should question whether we really know how holy God is. I've heard it said that there's no such thing as a little sin because we never sin against the little God. The incident from Leviticus 10 is similar to the time that we read about earlier in the service where the Ark of the Covenant is about to fall over. And so when it's teetering, one of the guys carrying it, Uzzah, reached out his hand to stabilize it. And he experiences the same fate as Nadab and Abihu do here. But once again, though, Uzzah was warned. Once again, Uzzah didn't obey God's instructions. Specifically for him, he didn't carry the ark how they were supposed to carry it. Once again, if Uzzah really knew how holy and how pure God is, then he wouldn't dare touch the ark with his tainted, sinful hands. Uzzah's hands were far dirtier than the ground the ark was in danger of touching. How should we react to this? Number three, we should remember that God is God and we are not. God is God and we are not. Now, I'm not saying this to shut down thoughtful questions or inquiries. However, this has to be included in how we react to Leviticus 10. We gotta remember, God is the one who judges us. We aren't the ones who judge him. God tells Aaron and his other sons not to go through public acts of mourning for Nadab and Abihu. He tells them this because their reaction as leaders of God's people was crucial. They could not give a hint that they thought God did anything wrong in this incident. As tough as that can be. How should we react to this? Number four, we should react to this incident by following God's word, not our wisdom. Following God's word, not our wisdom. There is a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs 14, 12 says, its end is death. We should follow God's word and how we are to approach him. We should follow God's word and how we are to worship him. We shouldn't do what we think is best we should do what God says because we trust that God knows what is best. Number five, how should we react? Leviticus 10, this incident should humble us. It should humble us. Think about these guys, Nadab and Abihu. They just spent a week in the most intense Christian conference there's ever been, pretty much. An intense ceremony that has set them apart to serve God. And look at how quickly sin consumes them. Nadab and Abihu just experienced the blessing of God's presence. And look at how quickly they could turn to rebel against God's goodness. Friends, let no amount of holiness, let no amount of your spiritual experiences, not let no amount of your past obediences make you think you are incapable and invulnerable to sin. We pray every single day, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from my evil heart. Number six, last, wrestling through what happened here. This incident should make us look to Jesus. Who can stand before the presence of the Holy God other than his Holy Son? You and I will end up like Nadab and Abihu unless we trust in Christ. He absorbed the judgment that we rightfully deserve. So God takes up residence with, among his people. What can go wrong? It turns out a lot can. Even today, the Lord warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit within us by being at peace with sin. The rest of chapter 10 sums up what can go wrong when God's presence shows up. What can go wrong? Well, we can fail to listen to God's word. We can live according to our own wisdom and our own commands. 
If we do that, chapter 10, verse 3 says, we will fail to treat the Lord as we ought to. If we do that, we will end up leading people astray. If we do that, God's reputation will be tarnished among those who observe us. What could go wrong? Verse 10 says that the priests could lead people away from holiness and lead them into sin. If we fail to listen to God's word, then we'll fail to teach God's word. The place where God resides will be filled with people who look nothing like the God they're supposed to represent. Friends, these things still can go wrong with people of God. Because God resides in us by his Spirit. So he charges us to be holy as he is holy. He charges us to glorify him with our bodies because we are his temples. He charges us to guard one another from sin. This is our duty as priests. As priests, we guard the place where God resides. It's not just for ourselves individually. We do this as a church. God resides in us as a church. Leviticus 10 verse 10 still applies to us in the new covenant. We distinguish those who have been made holy and clean by Jesus. We do that as best as we can. That's what we're doing with church membership and church discipline. Distinguishing those who have been made holy and clean by Jesus. That's what we do when we say every week, who can participate in the Lord's Supper and who can? That's what we're doing. We are trying to protect the place, guard the place and the people where God resides. We follow God's word in order to lead people to him. We follow God's word in order to represent him well in the world. We follow God's word in order to guard the place where God dwells. We follow God's word in order for his name to be glorified among us. God dwells among his people. That's good news. It's also weighty news. So just to bring things to an end. So after a sobering start, Chapter 10 closes on a reassuring note. Aaron and his two remaining sons still have jobs to do. In fact, believe it or not, the incident with Nadab and Abihu happened on their very first day on the job. Imagine that being your first day at work. Two guys get toasted. So priests, uh, we're reminded at the end of the chapter, priests got to eat part of every offering besides the burnt offering, which was completely burnt up. So Moses gets upset with his brother and his surviving nephews when they don't eat part of a sin offering that's left for them. Aaron explains to Moses that he hesitated to do this on a day like this one. But given what's happened, Aaron is afraid to eat these holy sacrifices. And after his explanation, Moses approves of it. Because this oversight comes not because Aaron is careless like his sons, but because Aaron is overly careful. So it reminds us, who is the God who dwells he is the holy God. Also, he is the good and gracious God. He is the God unstained by sin. He is not the God who plays whack-a-mole with his children, waiting for one another to mess up and pounce. <clears throat> we should feel the weight and the responsibility of being close to God. We should feel the weight and the responsibility of being priests, those who represent what God is like. We should remember that God is good and gracious. We should remember that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses and is yet without sin. We should remember that we have a great high priest 
the word says, lives forever to make intercession for his people. The great high priest who pleads the work that he has done on the cross in his empty tomb, who pleads that work to the Father on our behalf. So in all of our weaknesses, in all of our mistakes, all of our sin, we have a great high priest who can give us the peace and presence of even the Holy God. So let's pray together. Lord, we want to come away from your word feeling the weight of the task you've given us to do, to draw close to you. We want to know the blessing of your, uh, of your presence, but we don't want to take you lightly. So teach us, Lord, your goodness, and teach us reverence. Teach us that you are, are holy and pure, and that you are good and gracious and forgiving. And Lord, we will undoubtedly fail to represent you well. We will fail to live out the duties you've given to us as high priests. Lord, we ask for your grace to restore us, to grow us, and grace to keep us looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We do this now together as your people.